Hyper Wellbeing, a podcast about the startups, technologies, and people driving a brand new healthcare industry. Healthcare for healthy people. Consumer and data-driven, emerging as devices, apps, mobile, biology, health, and wellness converge. Continuous prediction, prevention, and optimization paradigm. And now, over to your host, D.S. Dreibra. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Hyper Wellbeing Podcast. On today's show, we have Don Brown. Don is a most successful software entrepreneur in the Midwest. His first company was acquired by EDS in 1986. He founded Software Artistry in 1988, which became the first software company in Indiana to go public and was acquired by IBM for $200 million. Don founded Interactive Intelligence, which went public in 1999 and was acquired by Genesis in 2016 for $1.4 billion. In 2016, Don donated $30 million for an immunotherapy center at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Don received a bachelor's in physics and a master's in computer science from Indiana University. He earned an MD from the IU School of Medicine in 1985 and a master's in biotechnology from John Hopkins in 2017. He was named Sagamore of Wabash by Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels in 2012. Hello, Don, and welcome to the Hyper Wellbeing Podcast. Thanks, Lee. Hi. So you're the CEO of Lifeomic, a company which I have been tracking for some time. Could you be so kind as to introduce, to give a brief introduction to, to Lifeomic? Yeah, I started uh, Lifeomic uh, almost two years or so ago. Um, I um, went through a, a combined degree uh, MD-PhD program many years ago and ended up taking an unexpected right turn into the software industry and uh, was in various uh, high-tech companies uh, for a number of years and had a good exit from a company that I had started 20 years ago and started Lifeomic with uh, the the notion of trying to bring some of uh, uh, the exciting things that have developed uh, the last couple decades in terms of cloud technologies, machine learning, and and other uh, computational uh, techniques to uh, medicine to try to move the ball forward on uh, precision medicine. And what does Lifeomic do? Well, uh, what we did was to uh, create a, a cloud platform based on Amazon Web Services that could aggregate all types of uh, health information, uh, everything from old school electronic medical records to uh, the next gen whole genome sequences um, in order to uh, try to do the sorts of big data uh, techniques that everybody realizes are the, the future of uh, uh, the delivery of uh, healthcare in general. It sounds like you just wanted to have fun. Well, yeah, you know, I did. I, for me, it was kind of uh, closing the loop after uh, a long time. And I, I really felt uh, like I just wanted to put together some really smart people from a number of disciplines and do something cool. Hopefully something that makes a, a contribution. Yeah, I, I looked at the your uh, LinkedIn and I saw you have four degrees 
And I was already envious that you've <laughs> managed to do that and find the time because learning is great fun. And you've got a degree in computer science, a master's, a bachelor of science and physics, a doctor of medicine, and a master of science in biotechnology. So even before building this, you've had a lot of fun playing in with education. Yeah, I, I have. And I think uh, one of the, the most fun things about it, if you notice, there were uh, about 30 years between the last two degrees. So I, I got my uh, MD back in 85. And just last year, uh, I finished up a, a master's program in uh, biotech from Johns Hopkins. Yeah. And are you based over in North Carolina? Our headquarters is in Indianapolis, but we have uh, uh, software development offices in uh, the Research Triangle Park area in North Carolina, as well as uh, where close to where I'm currently living out in Utah. Okay, because when I was, well, certainly before the age 25, I used to be a freelance consultant for Cisco at RTP. Yeah, it's a great area. I was just there for the Duke Precision Medicine Conference this week. Hey, we're getting a little bit chatty here. I am. It's like we're at the pub. I guess it's partly because we've not met or interacted before. So anyhow, my last guest, which was guest number four, was uh, Artie Arampour and his company is Seekster. And he's, to quote him, uh, enabling individuals to store and share longitudinal data sets. That's medical records, DNA fitness, and nutrition data. So I assume that it appears that LifeOmic have a different target audience, and that target audience is clinicians and researchers? Yeah, uh, we're working uh, with the Indiana University School of Medicine. Uh, that was our original collaborator on um, a big uh, precision health initiative that the university launched a couple of years ago uh, to try to assemble uh, those sorts of various data sets for particular uh, disease groups, uh, starting off with multiple myeloma, uh, which is a, uh, uh, a plasma cell, uh, a white cell cancer, um, a, a pediatric sarcoma, uh, and triple negative breast cancer. This is a storage platform for longitudinal data sets. Mm -hmm. However, including genomics and medical records and wearable data, I believe. However, it's not that platform is not targeted at individuals, at consumers, to be clear. Well, we're kind of moving in, in that direction. Um, we uh, built a, a mobile app. Initially, it was just, just for fun, uh, for the most part. During my uh, studies at Johns Hopkins, I became uh, fascinated by intermittent fasting. And uh, so we decided uh, to build a, a, a fasting app that we call the, it's in the uh, Apple, uh, uh, the iOS uh, app store that we call uh, Life, uh, the uh, Lifeomic Intermittent Fasting Experience. And uh, to our surprise, we had tens of thousands of people around the world uh, with no, no advertising uh, download and start to use this app. And so uh, what we're doing is building a next generation app that's uh, kind of a more broadly focused uh, health maximization uh, app that does use our platform for the storage of personal uh, health information as, as well. 
Uh, so we're kind of pursuing both top-down, you know, working with uh, hospitals and, and uh, clinical teams, but also bottom-up, uh, direct-to-consumer uh, sorts of approaches and, you know, hoping that uh, those can meet somewhere in the middle. Okay, so your core business up until recently, or you're, you're saying you're shifting away towards being direct to the consumer, but up until now, your core business has been uh, putting these, matching up these uh, large data sets so the clinicians and researchers can use them. For example, a researcher could uh, upload their data from their university hospital, and then they can start to ask questions like, hey, do we have enough patients with this particular gene expression between these ages coming into our facility to do a pilot study, for example, over the next 24 months? Is that, is that your core business at the moment? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we're working with uh, these uh, ac- academic uh, medical centers and uh, they're taking people who uh, already have a particular disease, uh, uh, like uh, multiple a cancer, like multiple myeloma, and loading their electronic medical records. So their you know their complete histories and physicals and medications, and then the sequencing information that that comes from sequencing their tumors. And then trying to understand why is it that some one person with uh, multiple myeloma will respond really well and go into remission uh, for uh, 20 years uh, with a particular type of treatment, and another person uh, will uh, have a cancer that uh, barely blinks and you know may kill them within a couple of years. Yeah, so your platform is letting beginning to let people like uh, uh, pharmacology work out which drugs delivered when and which dosages for whom, more specifically. Exactly, it's the whole notion of precision medicine that um, we'd really. I think the the holy grail is to be able to look at each of us as individuals and tailor treatments to us, and especially in terms of cancer. Because as we're learning, cancer uh, varies tremendously almost down to the individual. Maybe not for this podcast, I'm not quite sure, but I want to ask anyway. Have you done any reading on the metabolic theory of cancer, you know, Thomas Seafried? I guess I'm familiar with uh, the Warburg effect and uh, some of the uh, metabolic dimensions of cancer. I'm not familiar with Uh, that particular author. Okay, which is something I've been looking at lately and plan to have a guest on uh, much later. Anyway, you were speaking a few days ago, you you mentioned at the Precision Medicine event, and when I opened up the Lifeomic website, the heading is Powering Precision Health. Could you elaborate on any differences you've possibly tried to make in using precision health as opposed to precision medicine? Yeah, um, precision. The term precision medicine has been around for uh, a few years, uh, but there's a, a kind of a slow move uh, to the the notion of precision health, and the the connotation is that rather than uh, what healthcare has traditionally done, uh, which is to treat disease. Uh, to wait until people have problems and then to try to diagnose those problems and figure out how to, to uh, uh, treat them. What we really want to do is get ahead of the curve and work to keep people in good health for as long as we can. 
And uh, so that's the notion of uh, precision health, that it's more than just treating a disease like cancer or Alzheimer's, uh, but also uh, trying to uh, prevent us from developing those diseases in the first place, or at least forestalling them as long as possible. So you're meaning predominantly chronic diseases? Yeah. You know, what What we're finding is um, when I went through medical school, and I think this is uh, even still true today, uh, we look at diseases in isolation. So we look at, you know, one person gets Alzheimer's, another person gets Parkinson's, another person uh, develops osteoporosis, and uh, another person gets cancer. And what we're starting to realize is that these are all diseases of aging. Uh if we um, live long enough, uh, we are subject to all of these diseases, and they all reflect a, a common set of underlying disease processes where uh, the, the sort of homeostasis, the balance that, that we have, the resilience uh, to different sorts of stresses when we're younger starts to break down in midlife, you know, starting ar around the age of 50 or so. And if you plot the incidence of these diseases uh, over time, you just see this exponential increase that starts in midlife. And it's the same for all of these uh, diseases. And um, so, as I say, Precision Health is, a, is an effort to try to uh, look at uh, the contributors to that sort of disease process and take steps to keep us in, in good health, hopefully for uh, much longer. Because we've been successful in medicine the last few decades in extending a lifespan. Uh, but uh, if you ask most people, they don't want to live longer if it means living in decrepitude. What we want is to increase health span more than uh, increase lifespan. Absolutely. And you echo a lot of what Joseph Antoon, my uh, second guest in this podcast, said. I think the health span longevity is where the money is going to be or where money is moving to. Would you agree with that or is that not your forte? Well, it is. And I think, you know, all of these things uh, uh, tie together uh, and, and that really has given rise. Uh, I think Stanford was one of the early programs to actually uh, change the the label, uh, as it were, from precision medicine to precision health. And uh, I mean, it, it, it makes total sense that we want to start to get ahead of the curve in uh, treating people and uh, have them uh, adopt the sorts of lifestyle interventions that have been proven to maximize their uh, health span and hopefully decrease that burden of chronic disease. Well, I appreciate you focusing on uh, precision health and not precision medicine, because this podcast is about an emergent healthcare industry that I've dubbed hyper well-being, mainly because of the, the, uh, a backbone of it is man-machine convergence. And it's not to be confused with health 2.0 or digital health, which are just the existing paradigms digitized, i.e. disease care, but with digitization. And instead, hyper-well-beings uh, for the majority of the population, that is those who consider themselves healthy, as opposed to orthodox healthcare, which focuses on people who have become very sick. I saw the other day you had tweeted, or Lifeomica tweeted, 
In order to collect patient data and engage the patient in their healthcare journey via mobile apps, people want to ha- want have to want to use these apps. And that struck me as very orthodox healthcare. But I guess you were aiming at that market at that point. And I guess that's because you're caught between two worlds at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we think there's a convergence of those uh, two worlds. Um, we certainly have to treat people when they get sick, you know, uh, of course. We want to uh, try to uh, cure cases of cancer. We want to, we'd love to find a, a cure to uh, uh, complex diseases like Alzheimer's. But even better is to prevent people from getting those diseases in the first place. Um, and I, I think the last 20 years, we've seen uh, the, the emergence of a uh, focus on aging itself and a realization that we don't just have to accept aging and that aging isn't the same for everybody. It isn't this um, uh, inexorable sort of uh, process that uh, is like a car rusting outside, but that different people age at different rates. And what we do during our, our lives, uh, some of the common sense interventions like exercise and uh, nutrition can make a difference in the rate at which we age. Absolutely. And without a doubt, in fact, I know as a matter of fact, Apps are coming to the market to try and slow our rate of biological aging by precisely guiding our lifestyle choices. Well, and that's what we're trying to do uh, with our, we're calling it Life Extend, uh, that we'll be releasing for iOS and Android be, before the end of the year. Um, so we are trying to, uh, to merge these worlds so that people uh, uh, can aggregate their uh, healthcare information up in the cloud and take advantage of uh, machine learning, uh, real-time alerts that can let them know when there are signs that uh, they're uh, falling out of homeostasis in, in some particular direction and you know maybe going down the, the road toward heart disease or uh, neurodegenerative disease or, or uh, something else. Uh, but also trying to guide them toward those um, interventions uh, that uh, uh, have been proven to uh, slow down uh, the, the rate of aging and, and using some of the exciting developments uh, in uh, assessing biological age. I think the, the one that uh, really captivated me was uh, Steve Horvath's paper, I think in 2013 in Science, that uh, uh, looked at just a few uh, DNA methylation sites on a genome to uh, be able to uh, assess the rate at which different people were aging and finding that, uh, as we might expect, people who are smokers, who are obese, who uh, have terrible uh, diets, uh, age at a faster rate than other people who do a better job of taking care of themselves. I think it's called the Havarth clock. Is that pronunciation correct that you're mentioning? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think it was uh, Steve Horvath, but uh, I, regardless of the pronunciation, that's exactly it. It's looking at uh, these changes that take place 
you know, we all know about mutations in our DNA that uh, can uh, lead to cancer, but uh, there's this whole, uh, whole emerging field, field of uh, epigenetics uh, where uh, rather than mutations in the actual DNA code itself, uh, there are on and off marks, methylation marks uh, that happen in different tissues and with age uh, that change the expression of uh, genes, change the interpretation of that uh, DNA code. And um, we're, we're finding that we can analyze those uh, methylation marks very easily to calculate a, a biological age for each individual. And we need to start being able to compute uh, the interaction between the environment and our genes that um, affect gene expression. Yeah, yeah, we're finding that uh, there's a whole emerging field of analyzing what's called the exposome. Um, that we are all exposed to countless environmental uh, assaults every day, uh, bacteria, viruses, pollutants, uh, radiation, you know, all these things that do have an effect on our uh, uh, gene expression. So th- we, we pretty much know what ages us faster. So we know alcohol, especially uh, in excess, <laughs> Uh, ages us faster. We know the uh, quickly metabolized uh, carbs, e.g. bread, white flour, etc. Sugar ages us faster. We know the lack of sleeping. We know the high stress. We know uh, social cause stresses like loneliness ages us faster. Uh, Any others you can think of? I, I think uh, certainly uh, another one is lack of exercise, uh, uh, obesity. Uh, these are, are uh, factors that uh, do age us more quickly. Um, I, I think uh, a lot of this was kicked off by uh, David Sinclair's work at, at Harvard um, in discovering the uh, sirtuin family of uh, enzymes back in the, the 90s. Now, that led to the identification of resveratrol and you know all the publicity about that as the uh, uh, the French paradox, you know, red wine uh, molecule. But in the ensuing time, the the focus has been more and more on metabolic rate. I, to oversimplify uh, a bit, I, it comes down to uh, insulin. Being uh, and and especially an, an excess of, of insulin being a, something that's very bad for our cells. Having a, a typical Western diet where we've got uh, excess glucose floating around in our bloodstream all the time, uh, which results in insulin knocking on uh, the door of, of cells and giving them growth signals. We're, we're finding that that increases rates of cancer uh, and uh, certainly overall causes us to age more quickly. And so that's why obesity is uh, such a, a massive problem. And, and also uh, what, what you described, the, the sorts of uh, diets rich in uh, simple carbohydrates that cause spikes in uh, insulin, you know, those are very uh, harmful to our, our health and uh, simple interventions like intermittent fasting, uh, where you just 
try to uh, give your body a little bit of a, a break for 12, 14, 16 hours uh, a day can make such a huge difference. In essence, it's evolutionary medicine. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, uh, on an evolutionary level, and I love thinking of it this way, you know, we weren't evolved to uh, have bags of chips and cookies at our elbow, you know, and, and uh, to be eating around the clock. Uh, our ancestors would uh, hunt and uh, maybe bring down an antelope and feast and then might have to go for a day or two days or three days without much of anything. And that is the way our bodies have uh, evolved. And uh, uh, we need to do to take steps to uh, bring our diets uh, and our lifestyles closer in harmony to uh, that sort of uh, evolutionary ideal. I agree. Here it says LifeOmic, and I'll quote, aggregate clinical genomic imaging and lifestyle data for millions of patients and use this data to make discoveries and guide precision health. So just to be clear, at the moment, it's not for individuals to make discoveries. I, when I go to bed before 10 p.m., my postprandial glucose the next day tends to be lower. Instead, at the moment, it's for researchers and clinicians. But you are likely or are moving in the direction of taking that to the consumer so they can make their own discoveries. Yeah, yeah, we, we are. Um, and we, we do want to kind of uh, marry those up by allowing consumers to participate in uh, research studies. And there, there's a big problem in medical research right now. Uh, there are many uh, studies, uh, clinical trials that are unable to uh, reach statistical significance uh, or maximize their effect just because they can't uh, find enough uh, patients who meet the criteria uh, for those studies. And so um, what, what we're trying to do is build the, the cloud platform that allows those research teams to store and analyze you know, data for thousands or, or millions of patients, but then also to provide uh, this uh, mobile app that uh, hopefully will uh, uh, collect information from individuals and then hook them up with uh, the research efforts that uh, they might benefit from and uh, uh, that would benefit from their participation. I like the way you power these studies, and I'm sure you can uh, reduce the cost of studies and uh, make certain studies possible that wouldn't be possible otherwise. But do you think you'll move in the direction of letting uh, end users have uh, access to the platform to make their own, dis well, not make their own discoveries, that the platform itself tells end user, hey, when you go to bed before 10, your glucose the next day tends to be better. Do you think you'll ever go that far to offering insights based upon that big data to end users? Uh yeah, uh, that's a very prescient uh, question, and the answer is yes. Uh, and if, for me personally, I believe that's the direction uh, medicine is going, uh, especially in the U.S. Uh, our system is broken, and we, we just have a mess with the uh, reimbursement system we have, with the, the, the way uh, Healthcare providers have to deal with dozens or hundreds of different insurance companies. And I, th I think more and more people are just disgusted uh, with the whole system. 
in in other facets of our lives, we're able to take more direct uh, control, and I think that that's where healthcare is moving as well. Uh, there are tremendous resources available online, uh, artificial intelligence, the cloud. Uh, they are enabling people to uh, uh, take responsibility more for their their own health, and especially when it comes to uh, prevention of disease. And so absolutely, as we aggregate this information about uh, people up in the cloud, uh, we're building uh, an architecture that will allow us to send alerts to people. We have to be careful because uh, right now the uh, our, our FDA uh, is uh, loath to allow uh, anybody but uh, physicians to make actual diagnoses. Uh, so we can give advice, we can uh, give probabilities, uh, but we we can't make a definitive diagnosis and say, "Hey, you know, you've developed uh, uh, cardiovascular disease or or Alzheimer's." But uh, we can give uh, alerts to patients indicating potential problems and especially to then uh, refer them off to a a healthcare provider. One example I'll I'll give that's uh, pretty easy to understand, uh, we've developed uh, and uh, we'll be including as part of this app, uh, a facility that a feature that allows you, if you've got a questionable spot on your skin, to take a photo. Uh, and then uh, we send that photo up to our cloud. We've got an AI engine uh, that has trained a machine learning model to be able to identify uh, with 94% accuracy whether that uh, spot on your skin is cancerous or not, whether it's a, a melanoma or not. And so we can then uh, give you back um, an assessment. Uh, we can't say, hey, that's a melanoma, but we can say there's a, uh, uh, there's a high probability that that spot is a melanoma, and we recommend that you see a physician for confirmation. Yeah, so you, last part, you're talking about disintermediation. See, I saw disintermediation take place in the airline industry in the 90s, and then I saw it mostly after the year 2000 take place in telecommunications, but I haven't saw disintermediation take place in healthcare. For all the talk of um, digital health and so on, healthcare has, hasn't actually changed much with the advent of the internet, the smartphone and sensors. So would you agree that last part is a, ste- uh, a step towards disintermediation? Well, I, I, that's a pretty strong word. I'm not sure I would uh, use that uh, specific term, but I, I guess I view it more as democratization. That people, it, rather than having healthcare providers, uh, doctors, hospitals be the complete gatekeepers, that um, we all are going to have access to intelligent systems that provide us additional information. And, and especially when it comes to preventative uh, wellness. You know, uh, taking, as, as, as we talked about, taking steps that can uh, keep us from developing diseases uh, in the first place. But, but you're absolutely right uh, in that, uh, and, and I've, I've been part of software efforts that have 
uh, broad disruption to banking, insurance, uh, all sorts of other uh, industries. And healthcare has been a, a major holdout up to this point. Uh, but I, I do think disruption is uh, finally coming. Uh, I don't think that peop- uh, a lot of uh, uh, people in the healthcare system really understand the, the rate at which that's going to arrive. Uh, but uh, I, I think uh, individuals are going to take more responsibility for their health and be less inclined to just leave it in the hands of uh, doctors and hospitals. So I I would I think we're in agreement that healthcare is, for want of a better word, splintering. What I'm seeing uh, likely to emerge is a healthcare that's focused on prediction, on prevention, and optimization. And I don't think the orthodox healthcare will take that on. You described a number of a, a lot of baggage to it. I think it will stay for just acute prevention, uh, acute. <laughs> Uh, emergency response and injuries, but I don't think it will take on the great prevention and prediction and optimization roles because that's actually belongs to data science. Well, I, I think you're right. I, I think structurally, um, our healthcare uh, networks in most countries, uh, and again, uh, especially here in in the U.S aren't set up. They they don't have any incentives to keep people Plus, healthy. you don't have people who are knowledgeable in keeping people healthy. You don't have the knowledge there. And now you could train a new breed of clinicians who do have kind of knowledge, robust in lifestyle. But the thing is, it's too late because the machines and devices and software are coming in so fast and ever closer to the human being. For example, uh, there is a speaker, uh, a guest I've got coming up, and they, they're injecting sensors into the body permanently that can measure most blood chemistries and live in your body indefinitely. Everything is set for major change. And you're right. Clinicians uh, haven't been uh, trained, aren't trained. Um, When I was in medical school, the amount of time we spent on understanding uh, basic nutrition or wellness was pitiful. And so as a result, uh, doctors uh, know uh, precious little about uh, uh, these topics. And I I think you're right that uh, uh, big data is going to transform uh, all of this. I uh, gave the commencement address uh, at uh, the Indiana University uh, uh, School of Medicine graduation uh, last year. And I told the, the graduating physicians that uh, within a few years, uh, they were going to have to treat AIs as colleagues. Um, and I, I firmly believe that uh, that is where things are going and it is going to be transformed. Maybe even overlords. <laughs> well, I didn't dare say that. I think that would have gotten me uh, booed off the stage. Uh, but uh, it was enough of a, a shock to, to them to think that they would be using these systems, you know, not as search engines, uh, not as encyclopedias, but but rather as uh, colleagues that, um, I, and and uh, you know perhaps colleagues who are are better trained than they are in some respects. Yeah, machines took away the blue collar jobs with automation, uh, manufacturing, etc. But it's clear when you look. <laughs> I mean, it's abundantly clear. So much so, I sort of chuckle that when you look at where AI is going, it's just going to remove a lot of knowledge workers from the economy. And the more I study what 
medical doctors have studied and how they put it to use. All too often for comfort, I think, hey, a machine could replace this. And now we're in the near future. It's true. Um, you know, doctors are kind of perversely trained to treat data as an enemy. Um, it, it still boggles my mind, but uh, the doctors are instructed to uh, the kind of the classic uh, example is don't run a test unless you know what you would do with the results. And that's a reaction to uh, cost pressures. Uh, that um, be, because running tests, gathering data is uh, has an expense associated uh, with it, doctors are discouraged from running those tests unless they know in advance exactly how they would use the information. And this is exactly opposite uh, to the way most other industries operate. Uh, you know, you think of Google as the classic example. Uh, where with the internet age, the attitude is, give me all the data uh, you, you can. I'll collect as much data. I don't have to know what I'm going to do with it. I'm just going to assemble as much big data as I possibly can. And I'll use machine learning, AI, because uh, revelations will drop out of that data. Uh, healthcare is uh, set up in a, a kind of a, a medieval sort of way uh, that doctors are expected to memorize uh, thousands of different conditions and then use their expertise to look at a patient, ask a few questions, collect a few judicious points of uh, data, and then make a, a wise pronouncement regarding the diagnosis and, and the treatment. Uh, but computers are uh, and software systems uh, like uh, AI are much better situated to collect large masses of uh, data. Um, and again, this is what we're trying to help facilitate with our mobile app. We want people to be able to take photos of, uh, of their faces, of their throats, of their hands, uh, collect recordings of heart sounds, uh, of breathing sounds, put all this information in the cloud and have uh, AI systems that are running continuously against this uh, data and able to spot uh, incipient problems before they come outright uh, uh, disease conditions. And I, I, I think that it is where things are going and, and will, uh, uh, if, if nothing else, result in a profound change in the relationship between doctors and patients. <laughs> uh, I, I think that last part was uh, an understatement. You, you, you fundamentally begin to have to question the role of the doctor. As I say, I think that healthcare is uh, splitting into two industries. I had to quickly name it one day and I just said, hey, hyper well-being you know, because of hypertext and sort of hyper to represent machine. Plus the fact of optimization, it's not just the, the staying healthy. It's, it's also that health is actually a continuum. And I'm always surprised at the number of people who consider themselves healthy. And yet I often know in talking to them that, hey, they don't have optimal health. I know they'll have a nutrient deficiency, uh, for example, magnesium, or they have uh, small bacterial, uh, uh, a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, a gut parasite, uh, lacking vitamin D3. 
something of this nature. So, you know, it's not like health is binary to begin with. And you actually spoke of homeostasis. Yeah, we, loo- we lose that capability as, as, <laughs> as we age. But we can, for example, we, we can intentionally give ourselves a certain amount of uh, homeostatic stress to make ourselves more resilient. I mean, you have to train it, you know, the whole cold shower thing, et cetera. Yeah, the, the, uh, that's a fascinating topic of hormesis. Exactly, hormesis, uh, that's it. Uh, yes, that uh, these uh, small stresses, uh, and it, I, I think we all recognize this in, intuitively, that these small stresses make us stronger. You know, the old adage that what doesn't kill us makes us uh, stronger. There is, there's a lot of truth in it that stressing our, our bodies, and it's, it's an amazing thing when you think about it, um, uh, exercising, fasting is, you know, caloric restriction is one of those hormetic uh, stresses. Um, we're, we're finding that uh, uh, one of the reasons that a lot of plant chemicals are really good for us, uh, uh, like the uh, phytochemicals in uh, blueberries and uh, other brightly colored fruit, uh, they are uh, minor uh, mitochondrial toxins. Uh, they evolved as uh, poisons for insects to keep insects aw- away, and they toxify to uh, a minor degree our mito- mitochondria, and so this causes our cells to go. Oh wait, you know something uh, something bad might be happening. I've sensed a minor stress. And so I'm going to start to create more antioxidants, more chaperones, uh, more of uh, uh, these molecular mechanisms to prepare for a more uh, serious assault. And uh, that process of just periodically stressing ourselves in in a minor way uh, improves our uh, overall health, our overall resistance to disease. I appreciate that explanation. And if you want to live longer, you're going to need a little bit of cold shock, heat shock, a little little bit of uh, starvation. Yeah, all these these things, uh, and, and so that it, it's why it is good to uh, exercise works uh, by the same mechanism, uh, and eat a, a diet uh, rich in uh, all sorts of colors of uh, plant foods that uh, uh, are these minor stresses or provide these minor uh, stresses. Uh, being out in in the cold, in the heat. Yeah, don't uh, have a comfortable life is the key to living longer. Yeah, you can't just sit in front of the TV and uh, eat bags of, of chips. Uh, uh, that that isn't what what we're evolved to do. You know, we're we're evolved uh, to to move, to think, to uh, have to scrap for our existence. When we get closer to that. Uh, we find that we're happier, we're healthier, we're less stressed. And uh, to me, it just makes uh, total sense. On hey, I don't lines. mean to divert off too much and uh, become chatty catty here, but <laughs> let me share something. In my 20s, I used to occasionally fast five days at a time. And if I told anyone, they would get angry and say, oh, you're damaging your metabolism. You need to rev your metabolism. You're slowing it down. You could die. 
And I didn't do it because I read about it somewhere. What happened was one day I said, hey, I won't eat today and just see how it is. I just was curious. Okay, I felt better. Okay, do two days. And then I ramped up to five days, incidentally. And I would do this periodically in my 20s. And I was amazed by how alert I was, how good I felt. But then I had to sort of keep it as a dirty secret because I would get so much wrath for doing it. So, so much has changed. Uh, yeah, well, you were certainly ahead of the curve on, on that one. I, I wish I had known about it uh, I, or even uh, suspected that that would be a beneficial thing at uh, that age. Uh, I've only been practicing intermittent fasting for the last couple of years uh, but I've become a, a huge believer. I think what set me off, I read a paper uh, by uh, uh, Walter Longo at uh, uh, USC, who's one of the uh, leading researchers in uh, intermittent fasting. And um, I started uh, uh, down the internet rabbit hole, you know, uh, uh, looking at other research and just became increasingly convinced that this is just it's a no-brainer. It's a simple thing. You don't have to, uh, I think doing a periodic multi-day fast is a wonderful thing, but uh, that's uh, most people uh, are uh, unable to extend it for that long. But what, what we're finding is that you don't have to go five days uh, to, to derive benefit. Go 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours, uh, maybe a 24-hour fast uh, once in a while. Uh, and it, it, there are uh, very specific, well-defined benefits that come from just putting down the fork uh, for uh, a few hours or, or maybe a day. Uh, yeah, the the biggest while. way to <laughs> prevent uh, disease in the first place is just two things. Don't eat so often, at least have a gap. And I mean, these gaps don't even need to be big. I mean, 12 hours is for me just... I think it's insane. I would find it hard to eat. If I go to bed, I, I couldn't eat 12, 12 hours later because I would still be feeling too full. But many people are just eating as long as they're not sleeping. So don't eat as often. I give your insulin a chance to drop. You, you just cannot run about with high insulin all of the time or you are going to die quicker and uh, sicker. And the second thing is eat food, which is real. So it sounds kind of absurd. Don't eat all the time. And don't eat like food-like products, you know, don't eat the things that have barcodes. To me, it seems very, very simple to eliminate many uh, of the diseases straight out of the gate just via those two methods. You're exactly right. And the, the others that I would add to that, uh, I think fairly obvious, don't smoke. You know, we know that's a, a really bad thing. And then move. I. Uh, I do some form of, of exercise. Our bodies are designed to move. Uh, we start to break down when uh, we don't move. And it, it doesn't mean you have to be an ultra marathon runner or anything. Get out and walk. Uh, yeah, those, those very simple interventions can make an unbelievable difference in uh, yeah, When you say health. exercise, it doesn't have to be knocking the shit out of yourself. Uh, uh, walking one hour a day is tremendous for her, for uh, well-being. I mean, uh, longevity. It, it is, and you know, and if you're able, I know many people live in uh, urban areas. If you can walk uh, in a uh, in nature, that's that's even better. Uh, we're we're starting to realize there's a, a, a mindfulness component 
uh, to just being in a natural environment. So yeah, if you can do those simple things, you can increase your health span. It's proven. You can decrease the rate at which you age and decrease the probability uh, that uh, you're going to develop uh, these diseases of aging that, that we've discussed and certainly you know, uh, push them off by a few years, which can make all the When it the comes difference. to smoking, I've been noticing more and more states are legalizing marijuana. So I see less and less people smoking tobacco. Then I see states legalizing marijuana. I'm, and I've, I've not looked at any material on it, but I, I would assume that the lungs don't like any foreign <laughs> objects in them. Do you know how marijuana compares to tobacco? I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen some studies and you're, you're right. To, uh, to burn uh, any sort of material and uh, um, inhale it into your lungs is not good. Your, your body doesn't like it in any case. I, I think it does turn out that tobacco is especially harmful. Um, some of the, the tars, the nicotines are especially damaging and worse than uh, marijuana. But uh, taking any sort of uh, uh, superheated uh, uh Product into yeah, I kind of figured, and I'd gathered for some reason I don't know about uh, this topic that, but I'd gathered it. Tobacco was worse, but many are smoking the marijuana with tobacco, and then it doesn't have a filter and inhale yeah. deeper, unless you're Elon Musk, and hold it longer, or Bill Clinton. <laughs> and that's absolutely that's not a good idea. I, I think maybe the only difference is with cigarettes, people are smoking so many times during the day. And uh, I, I guess I don't, I don't know for sure. I'm imagining that people who smoke marijuana aren't doing it, you know, every hour, uh, aren't keeping a cigarette uh, going. So that, that may uh, be the reason, another reason that it's When I had bad. said in my 20s I would be uh, fasting five days a week without even calling it fasting, I just knew I felt better. And I, I, I just, there was just so many benefits to it. But then, as I got into my later 20s, I actually went to a nutritionist and I started uh, paying for private gym memberships, etc. And that's when I began getting pushed to eat six times a day. And then I was getting pushed towards healthy whole grains. <laughs> and before I knew it, I was vegan. And then before I knew it, I was type 2 diabetic. Yeah, this, uh, I, unfortunately, the. Um, uh, Healthcare industry is still largely ignorant of the benefits of uh, intermittent fasting. And there's this really bad advice people are, are given to graze. Uh, you know, there's this, this notion that you should just be nibbling constantly and that uh, somehow that's better. I think it, it appeals to people intuitively that well, if I'm nibbling all the time, I won't have these spikes in blood gl glucose and spikes in uh, insulin. But it, it uh, turns out to uh, not be to be the opposite of of what most people need to do. Now it's different if somebody's a type one diabetic. You know, there are certain conditions where uh, fasting is not indicated, people with uh, uh, eating disorders. You know, so I want to- Don't worry, we're not giving medical advice. <laughs> yeah, 
it's not it's not for everybody, but I think for the vast preponderance of, of people, uh, it is far more healthy to eat uh, uh, two, three times a day, but especially to try to confine that eating period to around eight to 10 Absolutely. Hours. I mean, eight to 10 hours is quite a lot. I'm a little bit shocked. I mean, I would say, of course, please don't have a eating window greater than eight to 10 hours, please. Well, it's just for most people, that's, uh, that's a change. And if they can just make that change, which I think is relatively easy, I mean the other the flip side of that means you're fasting between so you call it fasting but hours a geez, day. I wouldn't think of that as fasting. That's just called keeping your mouth a bit closed for some of the time. I mean, like, but but it, but it is you know it's uh, it's, uh, I, it's guess, I guess many pe- I guess most people are glucose way. junkies. Well, they are. People uh, are addicted to eating constantly. Yeah, but they're also not um, fat adapted. So, so I guess they keep needing the the glucose coming in or they get hangry, etc. Well, they, they do. And and so for, for most people, if they can just start there, take that first step of uh, after you eat dinner, just don't consume any calories until you have breakfast the, the next morning. And then just try to widen that period. Uh, I think I've seen some of the uh, researchers, I can't remember which one, describe it as just eat an early dinner and eat a late breakfast. And if you prefer to think of it that way, rather than time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, uh, whatever you want to call it, however you want to think of it, give your body a break from calories uh, for uh, you know, at least uh, uh, you know, twelve to, to sixteen hours, that you will see health benefits. You will see over time your weight normalize, um, and especially if you're you're doing what you describe, uh, eat real food, uh, not heavily processed foods. You will improve. I'm your jumping health. around with the, the personal snippets. I should get back on track here. So we've been speaking about what you would essentially call uh, evolutionary medicine. And then it's kind of funny because we're talking about the future of technology and this overlaid sensor network, cloud, big data, etc. in order to guide us to live more in touch with our evolution. And in fact, you had touched on uh, our biology in the cloud. And for sure, we all will have models of our biology our unique biology, running in the cloud continuously. And occasionally what will happen is we'll take some lab tests and that will resync the system. It could be once a year. And the rest of the time we'll be running a model of our biology. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, the, the way we see this developing, the cost of uh, uh, whole genome sequencing is dropping rapidly. Um, I think Paul Allen uh, uh, paid $100 million or so back in the early 2000s to have his uh, genome sequenced. You or I could do that uh, today for a little over $1,000. Within uh, five years, that's going to be $100 or so. And so that's something you just have to do once. Right to uh, understand what's called your germline uh, uh, genome sequence, what you were born with, and uh, then that can be stored in the cloud. 
And that gives a, a, an AI running up in the cloud an understanding of what genetic variants each of us was born with. You know, a, a, a great example is the uh, ApoE gene. Uh, there are four common variants in the population, just numbered one through four. If uh, one of us has uh, two copies, of one from mom, one from dad, of number four, uh, our risk of Alzheimer's is increased somewhere uh, 50-fold uh, times normal. And so that's a, a critical piece of information. Uh, and just one example, you know, the BRCA genes that uh, contribute to uh, uh, risk for uh, breast uh, and ovarian cancer. Uh, and we're finding more and more of, of these. So a system can start off knowing what Don or Lee has as uh, a baseline uh, in terms of uh, disease. And not just singular gene, it's more swinging towards polygenetic. Well, yeah, I mean... I, the APOE4 was just a, a, an easier example. Is that why you mentioned that one in BRCA? Yeah, that's just kind yeah, of the, 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 the prototypical uh, example. Yeah, so you know we we have about twenty thousand protein coding genes, uh, at least as many uh, RNA coding uh, genes, and and so you're you're exactly right. You know we started off uh, looking and understanding monogenic uh, monogenic disorders, and now uh, we're we're starting to have the data to be able to look a, across sets of, of genes, but uh, in in either case. And AI can have that information about us in the cloud. And then, as you described, that can be uh, combined with... Uh, it can be like combined with wearable data, but you can also have models of how our how biology works in the cloud, like a real model, a real avatar of our system in the clouds and resync parts of it against actual blood tests, et cetera, again later. Yeah, I think that's where things are going, uh, that we, we are going to be able to model what's going on in each of us uh, combining that uh, whole genome sequence information with uh, what's going on currently, what our uh, uh, lipid levels are, you know, our HDL, LDL, cholesterol, uh, our uh, uh, thyroid levels, you know, all, all these uh, other uh, uh, molecular levels that we can run periodically. Yeah, and I also think more gut testing is going to come into, I don't mean just like microbiome, but I mean checking for parasites, checking for large intestinal fungal overgrowth, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I think our guts are uh, are going to come more into the, the picture, i.e. tested, quantified. I think you have to start putting the guts into as part of that uh, whole system. Well, yeah, at the uh, Duke Precision Medicine Conference, uh, the topic of the microbiome was a huge one uh, this last week. And we are realizing that uh, the composition of the gut flora has a, a big impact on health and is one of those additional pieces of data that we want to have. Yeah, I think we're going to be in a position where we, at home, take our own blood, put, put the, uh, the cartridge into our consumer device. There was a company speaking... Uh, uh, an event I put on, uh, Know Your Core, C-O-R is the company's name. And so what they're planning is you take your own blood at home. The device could sit in the bathroom. A whole family can use it. You take your blood into the little vials and you, you insert it into the uh, the device. It 
uploads uh, it to the cloud. But I also think, uh, don't try and imagine this too much, that we'll also be doing stool samples will become more normal. I mean, instead of just doing it when you're sick in an institution, I also think that uh, you're, you're not just going to be sampling blood. You, you need to keep taking this data, as well, not as often as you can, but uh, not just when you're sick. You're right. And what, what you describe is uh, that individual personalized uh, approach, taking personal responsibility for your health. And I think that absolutely in, includes collecting your your own blood, saliva, stool, whatever it, it might be, and uh, it, using devices either at home or uh, that you uh, send samples uh, away to. But I, again, not going through a doctor or a hospital as the gate. So I agree. When you say the word responsible, I, I don't know why I just feel a touch uncomfortable. With it. I would use the word proactive because the word responsible is kind of, I just kind of feel as a tone of blame to it. And I actually think the present system we have is quite harmful to people and not helping. It's more the other way about it. It's irresponsible. For example, we let people sail into diabetes. I mean, orthodox healthcare lets people sail into diabetes. It's you're way down the diabetic journey by the time you're told you're pre-diabetic and it could have been detected at least a decade beforehand and uh, subverted, remedied. Yeah, maybe a better word is control. Uh, that you're able to take control of your own health, take your your own health destiny into uh, your hands rather than uh, leaving it up to somebody else. Yeah, because this leaving up to somebody else isn't working, which is why we've got skyrocketing uh, disease and obesity. That's exactly right. So when I hear all this health 2.0 and digital health, I, I just look at the charts of obesity and uh, chronic disease since these terms have been used for over a decade. And I'm like, uh, are people not noticing something here? I mean, like, surely this isn't helping. It doesn't appear to be helping. So why are we having all these conferences, et cetera? Well, I, I think that people are uh, casting around for ways to use technology I use data. I, I think we everybody in healthcare uh, realizes that big data is part of the solution, but a lot of healthcare providers are loath to give up the control that they've had, uh, their status as gatekeepers. Um, and it's slowly dawning on more and more people that uh, th that sort of gatekeeper status is going to go away. And uh, individuals are going to assert more control over uh, the collection and analysis of information about their their bodies and their, their health. I find it crazy that in the United States, you just can't walk in and get your own body data, like walk in and order an insulin <laughs> test. Yeah, you know, we, we have this uh, uh, crazy HIPAA uh, law that, you know, was probably well-intended to try to uh, uh, provide some data protection and, and privacy. But unfortunately, institutions tend to adapt uh, those sorts of uh, provisions to their own ends. Uh, I uh, went in a couple of years ago for a doctor's visit. Uh, the nurse uh, measured my blood pressure. I asked her what readings she got, and she said, I can't tell you. And I said, why? And she said, because of HIPAA. <laughs> 
and uh, it's it's just an insane uh, sort of uh, system. But again, you know, people start to use it as an excuse to not have to to deal with patients. I also think it's an excuse to keep people in. Uh priesthood positions and also to ensure profit flow. Absolutely. I, I think that, um, and again, I don't want to uh, denigrate uh, doctors. I went through uh, medical school. Uh, there are many, many wonderful caring physicians out there, but it has been treated as kind of a priesthood, as you say. And so I, I think it's hard for uh, a lot of people in the, the healthcare establishment to get out of that mindset. Talk, jumping slightly here, just I'd made a note about optimization. Have you heard of triage theory at all from Bruce Amos? No, please. You've heard of orthomolecular medicine, right? Uh -huh. When it comes to nutrition, we've traditionally only linked it to death and disease. You know, if you if you don't have this, you'll have scurvy or rickets, etc. Or you're missing a certain nutrient, you'll you'll uh, die within weeks or months. But his triage theory, which he's been proving, beginning with zinc, is that nature will trade the long term for the short term. So if you're, def you're quote, deficient, I mean, RDAs and RDIs count for nothing. These are super low levels. So even if you're getting what will prevent disease more immediately or death, you still can be low. And what nature does is it, it, it doesn't invoke processes that would increase longevity. So if you are if you have uh, lower levels of zinc, you, you don't kick off certain processes that would let you live longer because it's being channeled into the current uh, into the here and now to help you procreate. You know, procreation is key. Uh, the triage theory is saying, hey, we actually need a lot more nutrition than we currently aim for because we just aim for that immediate disease prevention of today or early death, not for longevity. I'll actually put it in the show notes. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that. It, the theory applied in in that way, but uh, it's interesting. It's consistent with with something at the cellular level that's uh, or the organismal level, I guess that is referred to as antagonistic uh, pleiotropy, and it's a you know mouthful that just means that there are we we've evolved with certain genes and uh, uh, genetic uh, approaches to do exactly what you described, to uh, uh, maximize our, our chance of, uh, of reproducing, of passing on our DNA to uh, the, our high chromosomes to the next generation, and that biology will, if it has to make a trade-off between longevity and uh, our ability to uh, reproduce, it's um, it's going to favor the the latter, um, and so there, there's no evolutionary pressure to try to make us live longer and and healthier lives, um, and um, I, I, that really ties back to insulin. No, nature only really cares that you uh, procreate. <laughs> Then you can yeah, that, that you know, and stick around long enough to uh, you know help uh, uh, get those kids uh, up to you know the point of being able to appropriate. It, it's not waiting for them to go to un university. No, it's not. Sadly, that's exactly right. So we have to look after ourselves. So I look here and I see that Lifeomic released a fasting app, which you had mentioned, and the the company, your company, put out a press release on May the fourth. Mm -hmm. 
And that uh, read, let me read it here. Lifeomic released the first of its life apps to help individuals track and improve metabolic health. The app supports any type of fasting schedule, including time-restricted feeding, circadian rhythm fasting, alternative day fasting, and others. Users can securely share information to, to contribute to medical research and receive more personalized care from their physicians. So I have a few questions here. It doesn't measure metabolic health, right? I, well, the current fasting app is really focused just on, on fasting. Um, yeah, so it says uh, improve metabolic health, but you don't know it improves metabolic health. We, we know fasting does, but the app doesn't quantify that at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the point. We know that uh, regular intermittent fasting will improve your metabolic health. Do you think you'll ever start sending uh, direct-to-consumer blood spot kits so they can uh, prick their finger, take their blood, send it back in the post, and you can start um, attaching uh, some quantification to them? Yeah, with our Life Extend app, we are integrating with a whole bunch of companies that provide that individualized testing. Uh, so that uh, it may be that you want to uh, do whole genome sequencing or test your uh, gut microbiome. Uh, so from the app, you will be able to order those test kits and then they will deliver their information back into our platform so that it's, it's all accessible from within the app. So you're going to build like a, a dashboard, which you can order uh, DNA test kits or microbiome test kits. Exactly. Yes. What, what about like uh, oxidative stress, for example, or mitochondrial function? Have you thought about including them somehow in that? Because that's where my mind has been of late. Well, what we've tried to do is build a, a platform so that we can offer integration with any sort of testing that uh, that we think would be useful. Uh, so absolutely, for, for some people, it's uh, going to be a simple matter of um, taking a blood sample and you know testing for thyroid levels or vitamin levels. Uh, but... Uh, I think inevitably that's going to cover a wide range of uh, health factors, of health quantities. Yeah, I've started looking at uh, quantifying mitochondrial health and also oxidative stress. And I see it as very useful to combine with apps and lifestyle guidance. But the, the, the cheapest, easiest thing to do today is glucose ketone index. Yeah. So, you know, you obtain someone's glucose, you obtain their ketone, you, you know, you can get the meters quite cheap. Yep. They do both. And then, you know, you can compute the glucose ketone index, you know, keep it below two, you're, you're, you're going to live a, you're much more likely to live a longer, healthier life by keeping a good GKI uh, glucose ketone index. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do the same thing. I've got a, a little meter in my, my drawer and it's very easy to just uh, take a, a, a prick, a pin prick and a drop of blood and uh, measure glucose and uh, ketones. I love doing that after different intervals of fasting to watch how my, uh, to see how my ketone levels are, are changing. With our app, you can enter that information within the app. We'll store it and graph it and use it with our AI engine as you know, part of one of the elements of, of data. But will but will the consumer be able to see those graphs? Yes. You're saying in an app which is coming. So yes. Lifeomic of, oh, okay, good. So Lifeomic, because here's the thing. 
I suspected the Lifomic were between two worlds, which is why I got in contact. And so you've clarified you are between two worlds. So as you step into the other world, you've produced this intermittent fasting app, and then you're going to release this app you're calling Extend. Yes. And you've created a Twitter account, I see, for each of them. And the Life Extend app has a profile. Let me read it. Life Extend app guides you in living healthy, uh, longer and healthier with the power of precision medicine. So I like uh, living longer and healthier. I'm a bit confused by precision medicine there because, uh, you know, I think that's something you got after sick. So this, this app, do you, when, when is it going to be available? And it, just to clarify, it's focused on health span and lifespan. And how does it achieve greater health span and lifespan? Well, we we try to use gamification, um, so uh, we 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 try to simplify it, boil it down to uh, what we call five pillars. Uh, so when you open up the app, you see these uh, little uh, little bar charts that um, allow you to uh, quantify uh, first uh, the number of servings of fruits and vegetables you've had that day, second the number of minutes of exercise. Uh, third, the number of hours of sleep. Uh, fourth, uh, the number of minutes of mindfulness or meditation you've done. And fifth, the number of uh, hours of fasting uh, that you've uh, engaged in that day. And we use those to calculate uh, a little score that we refer to as life points. And so it becomes a game to try to maximize your score and then share that with uh, social circles that you create that might be uh, friends, family, and colleagues. It's kind of funny you mentioned this because last year I was helping a client come up with a similar concept and they were going to do an ICO in, in exactly the, the, uh, the same domain because... Uh, such gamification fits a tokenized crypto system quite quite well, you know, because the the points are are tokenized. Right, right. Yeah, we 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 don't uh, we we're not going down the road of uh, creating any sort of uh, cryptocurrency or anything. You're not, not you're not, not going to ICO it. Yeah. Hey, can I ask you when it comes to mindfulness? How are you quantifying that? Because I start thinking of like the Muse headset. Uh, there are so many different approaches to uh, to mindfulness. We're just uh, uh, the f- the first step is just to allow users to uh, quantify it however they they like. So from the app, just tell us what you count as mindfulness, uh, uh, whether it's prayer, meditation, yoga, whatever whatever it is. Uh, you tell us how many minutes of uh, meditation uh, you got. And then we're working with different uh, uh, mindfulness uh, researchers uh, to actually build mindfulness capabilities into the app. So if you want to use ours, you can. If uh, uh, you've got some other... And does it... Does it so you don't need extra hardware. Somehow, uh, how, how, how does it measure mindfulness with no extra hardware? Well, we're, we're not trying to measure. We're we're uh, letting the user tell us. Oh, so it's... Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I understand. So you've got these five pillars, which is fruits and vegetables, exercise, mindfulness, sleep, and fasting. Yeah. And you measure each of these and you come up with this life points figure. Yes. Okay. And I saw on Twitter, I don't know where it came from, but I saw a screenshot of an app. I guess it's coming from the forthcoming Extend app that you've been speaking of. And it has biological age and 
well, I was going to say chronological age because I think it should be, but it says uh, lifespan age. This life uh, extend up is going to show biological age as well as chronological age. Well, biological age and then estimated lifespan. So those are oh, est- I got confused. Yeah. Okay. So estimated lifespan. So we're talking the number of years you have left. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, this is kind of freaky because when I put on an event in uh, 2016, I described it to someone, hey, look, machines are going to know the day and the time of your death. <laughs> and I just got a blank, scared kind of look. And it it became obvious to me the last 14 months that I've been looking at biological age. Yes, machines will fairly accurately be able to predict uh, your date and time of death. And not only that, but there'll be life GPS, as I I called it. So it's like, hey, look, if you eat that, well, you've probably lost 30 (laughs) life seconds. Hey, if you go out with that person because of the stress level they tend to bring you, you're probably overall going to lose, you know, two months of your life if you keep mixing with that individual. The machines do become our overlords. And the thing is, the machines are going to understand our lives and human beings better than we understand ourselves. We're actually not so smart in our decision making and our foresight. We're actually uh, very poor. So we have these machines that uh, soak up what I call intimate data, but uh, health data, wellness data and lifestyle data. They crunch it in the cloud and, you know, the machines work out the patterns of human being health and human being decision making. And, hey, they know the date of your death. They know when you're likely to marry, etc. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about the date and time of your death. But the, the overall idea that machines can take this data about us and make pretty accurate predictions, I think, is spot on. I think it's only a question of time. Maybe I—I don't even want to say. Maybe I'm too certain because I'm that certain that I'm certain. So, but let me—I know uh, you—you need to go soon. So let me just ask you a a couple more questions, if I may. How are you calculating biological age? There's some fairly simple algorithms. What it what comes down to is the more we know about you, the more accurately we can make that uh, calculation. We, we can get a rough idea of your biological age just by knowing a few simple things. What, you know, first of all, what's your chronological age? Uh, how much do you weigh? How tall are you? Uh, what sort of dietary patterns do you have? Some, with five or 10 questions, we can come up with a, a pretty good estimate of your uh, biological age. But then what we also do, uh, there are companies like MyDNAH uh, that will take a, a, a blood sample and run the Horvath uh, uh, methylation uh, test and give you a a much more quantified uh, estimate. So we will allow you, uh, make it easy within the app to order a kit, uh, as we described earlier. We get back the information from them uh, regarding your biological age uh, so that we can show that. Uh, So uh, there are a number of ways that uh, uh, we can show with different degrees of accuracy you, what our calculation is. I was uh, Googling that. Did you say my DNA age? Uh, it's my DNA age. Oh, okay. So because when I looked into quantifying it, and there's a lot coming to the market, and more and more of it's going to uh, AI, 
uh, it depends how much money you're willing to spend. For example, if you can spend, say, $400, you can have lifelength.com look at your telomeres. And they look at the average number of short telomeres, which is very good, which is more advanced in the likes of teloyears.com. So um, do you know the, uh, or can you, I don't know, is, is it public how much this company charges to look at the methylation method? Um, I, yeah, it's, it's public. It's on their website. My rough recollection was about 300 bucks. Oh, uh, so it's a sort of life length type figure. Because the best is if you take the blood chemistry and you take the DNA and you take the telomeres and a, a few other calculations, it's that, it's that combination uh, gives better accuracy. But the good thing is you can then recommend lifestyle changes in the app give people time to make them and then retest and then you can measure if their age is accelerating or decelerating well yeah you know the the uh, question we got even from one of our own developers when we started um, uh, talking about in, uh, intermittent fasting internally was okay if I start intermittent fasting prove to me show me that it's making a difference you know how do I know and so it's exciting to think that with a, a blood sample that we can send off to somebody, one of these companies, uh, once a year or so, we can actually see that the lifestyle changes that uh, we're making are making a difference, are, are, that we can quantify their effect on our biological ages. I think that is key. Because you might do certain things that you think is good for your health, like, for example, consume a lot of protein powder, and you might find that's not the best for IGF-1 and longevity, or you may be a little extreme in weightlifting, and you're eating continuously, and you, but, how, but you still see that as fitness, yet it's anti-longevity, and you might be recommended certain diets, and I don't think anybody should really go in the belief of other people. You need to quantify it. You need to see if it's working. The ultimate way of seeing if these lifestyle changes is working, is to measure your biological rate of aging. I, I think we all want that. We want some confirmation. Uh, people are really poor at responding to kind of vague long-term promises. You know, uh, you can tell people that, look, uh, doing this will make you live longer, uh, not develop diseases, but it's just less tangible unless we can see some quantification. And I, I think there is a huge psychological value in, in getting that sort of affirmation. Looking at those five pillars, I'm not so sure that fruits are as good for you as government advice has made them out to be. You know, that whole idea of five portions once a day, I don't think was actually, uh, I don't think there was any actual science behind a number five. And I don't think that fruits and vegetables are equal. I, I think a lot of fruits are more sugary and are not as nutrient-dense as we're led to believe. Plus, I notice people don't even seem to know what's in season. And I, I, somehow that concerns me. You know, I think there's a trade-off in trying, in, in coming up with something easy for people to understand. If we try to give people some complex chart with a rating system for every variant of fruit and vegetable, nobody will use it. But I, I think there's ample, and not from the government, ample scientific evidence that if you, in, if you maximize your intake of yet fruits and vegetables, you will improve your health. And that's more important, uh, consuming uh, that sort of varied plant-based diet 
is more important uh, than uh, trying to eliminate other things. Uh, oh, definitely is a first step. I mean, if it's a question of a real piece of food, I, uh, fruit or a boxed uh, food-like product, certainly it's the former. But that's that's exactly right. And so that's we, we're just trying to simplify this so that uh, it becomes something very easy for people to measure and understand. And so to, to count the number of servings of fruit and vegetable you get every day, and I totally agree, not all fruits are created equal, not all vegetables are created equal, but it's just a very easy sort of thing for people to comprehend. And I, I think the, there's ample evidence out there that uh, uh, getting a, num- a good number of servings of fruits and vegetables every day will improve your health. I notice we're coming up for the hour and a half, so I'll try and wrap this up for you. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Let me ask you just two simple things. First of all, what, what devices do you use to improve your health, your longevity, your wellness, if any? I assume you, you do use one or more. And finally, what supplements do you take, if any? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I have a Fitbit, a cracked Fitbit on, on my uh, wrist. Uh, that I use, uh, uh, you know, obviously to measure uh, mainly my heart rate. Uh, I do, uh, of course, my activity level. I try to get at least uh, 10,000 steps a, a day. Um, and then um, periodically to measure my, my sleep. Uh, but, um, you know, that's my fam- uh, favorite uh, fitness device. Uh, which, what did you say which model of Fitbit you've got? Uh, the charge uh, two that has a heart rate monitor. Quick question from the side: yeah. You're developing for the Apple Watch, are you not? Yeah, well, not specifically for the Apple Watch. We're uh, with our new app. We're interfacing both to Apple Health Kit, uh, which uh, is kind of an API that does uh, include the Apple Watch, uh, as well as Google Fit. Okay, and is that going to be the Life Extend app on the watch? Because I believe you're making the fasting app for the watch. I mean, the fasting app is out today. The Extend app is not out at all. And I asked earlier, but I forgot to follow up. When does the Extend app come out and which platforms does it come out on first? Uh, it'll be out before the end of this year, and it'll come out simultaneously for uh, iOS and Android. And um, the watch? Uh, we haven't started making uh, an Apple Watch version yet. Uh, that's but, you ha- but you have done that of the fasting app, or am I no. mistaken? No, no, we haven't. Okay, I just wondered. So I, I derailed you there. So you no, were going to okay. tell me these supplements, which are going to make us all live a uh, long and healthy <laughs> life. But going back to that um, hormesis earlier, yeah, you know, it's made me be more careful of taking too many an- antioxidants. Yeah, it's, uh, that's exactly right. Um, there's a, a good evidence that taking antioxidants will blunt that hormetic uh, effect. So I, I don't. Uh, what I, uh, uh, I don't take a whole lot. I, uh, if, I'm, if I'm not getting sunshine, I'll take vitamin uh, D. What kind uh, of dosage in IU? I... I don't even remember. I think it's a couple thousand uh, IU, but I so much prefer. Take, you take it daily, then a synthetic one in the winter. I unless I can get uh, sunshine. I try to get sunshine even in the in the winter. Uh, so uh, that's 
far preferable. Uh, but then in a, in a, the other things I, I take, uh, I'm the main thing I take is, uh, uh, an NAD precursor supplement, uh, the, uh, there's uh, NMN and uh, NR, uh, so uh, I'm convinced that uh, that's a, a good one. I take one from a company called Elysium Health. Yeah, and I was looking at them also, and then an their NAD supplement I've been considering. Yeah, I think there's really good science. Uh, it comes out of the research by Leonard Gorente at uh, MIT. Um, I, our NAD levels drop as we age, and NAD is a critical cofactor for the sirtuin uh, enzymes that we mentioned in, in passing. And uh, so I, uh, uh, Elysium makes one uh, that provides nicotinamide riboside, which is a, a precursor, gets turned into uh, NAD in the body. Really, that's the main thing I, I take consistently. I take fish oil. Uh, sometimes, um, uh, and sometimes I, I still take uh, resveratrol. Do you take CoQ10? Uh, yes, I do, per- uh, periodically. I try not to take very much every day, but uh, I take uh, CoQ10 periodically. And what about magnesium? Yes, I take uh, magnesium supplements uh, uh, oh, three or four times a week. Anything else I'm missing out on? Oh, I take uh, fish oil uh, periodically. Where do you source your fish oil, if I may ask? Uh, zone Labs. Okay, because fish oil was something I looked at for a couple of years, and I just didn't take any because I assumed uh, it seemed to me it might cause inflammation because most uh, fish oil is very badly produced. Uh, it's rancid, etc. So eventually I found two brands I was willing to go with and one in particular. Yes, I think you're right. That it's very important to go with a quality uh, brand. And then I, I uh, periodically take resveratrol supplement. And do you know what kind of dosage you take of that? Because it's also my list, but I was never quite sure what dose to take. I, I take uh, the supplement from a company called Longevinex. And I don't recall the exact dosage. I'll get it off you and put it in the show notes. What about K2? I know. Okay, I definitely it's definitely top of my list. My top of the list is D three, K two, and uh, magnesium. And uh, but anyhow, I, I should let you get going soon. So I really like where you're going with these apps, and I love the way you've got a foot in. I don't want to call it orthodox healthcare, but, but you you definitely have a foot in there with the whole precision medicine. But you, you're kind of seeing the big picture, so you're calling it precision health. And with these consumer-facing apps, and you've already got one out aiming in a good area, the fasting, I love the way you're stepping it into this new world. And this biological age measurement in an app is absolutely fantastic. And I'm aware a uh, few companies who are also coming out with apps with biological age integrated. And I, I think the next few years are going to be terribly exciting. And I, I can't wait to try your apps out. I must say, though, that on my iPhone uh, for some reason, it's set to the UK store, and I tried to download the fasting app, but it says US store only. In Europe, uh, you have the GDPR privacy uh, standard has uh, kind of inhibited us uh, a little bit. Our, our new app will be available, uh, will have GDPR support, and so will be available throughout Europe. 
Okay, it's either that or it takes me like 30 minutes to hack the App Store via various yeah. methods to yeah. make it say US. Hey, Don, I highly appreciate your time. I'm really glad I got in touch. I've enjoyed chatting with you and getting in sync, and I really appreciate having you as guest number five on the Hyper Wellbeing Podcast. Well, it was an honor to be asked, and I enjoyed it too, Lee. Thanks. Adios. Appreciate it. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing. <laughs>